Welcome to Exploring the Industry, where we find out what God's doing in the entertainment world. I get to interview Christians from various entertainment industries. They share their stories of faith and transformation with you and I. I'm hosting people from many different backgrounds to share what God is doing and where he's shown up most in their lives and their careers through their highs and lows. We're believing to influence the narrative of how Christians perceive what God's doing in the entertainment industry around the world. If a picture is worth a thousand words, their story is worth a thousand sermons. Come join the conversation and welcome to the show. Terry Botwick is the producer and CEO of 1019 Entertainment. Terry founded Thunderpoint Studios in March of 2003 to finance and produce a portfolio of 20 theatrical movies, predominantly targeted to PG-13 and less restrictive audiences. A forward-thinking executive, Terry has had an eclectic resume of broad-ranging success within the entertainment industry. He joined Big Idea in May 2001 as the president and chief operating officer, during which time he expanded the VeggieTales brand through book publishing, live entertainment, television, and oversaw the marketing of Jonah, a VeggieTales movie, which grossed over $25 million at the box office. Terry has also served as the Senior Vice President for CBS Entertainment, overseeing all primetime series programming as well as the network's special events such as the Grammy Awards, Tony Awards, and Daytime and Primetime Emmy Awards. As a producer, he has many projects up his sleeve, and today we're going to get a history lesson that will help you see a behind-the-scenes look in the entertainment industry. Join the conversation as we discover how God partnered to Terry in powerful ways to see kingdom projects actually manifest. Welcome to Exploring the Industry. My name is Sean Bowles. I'm your host, and I'm here with Terry Botwick, who I'm so excited you're here. Glad to be here. This is fun. I was thinking about when we met, and we met over when you were uh, had just finished Captive, the movie, right. and you just produced it. And we actually met, uh, I met you and your wife, yeah. and you guys came over to our church, and we were doing kind of an industry night, and it was such an awesome time to hear your story, and it captured me. You know, I was, mm. It was one of those things where... I still think about it today. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted you to be a guest on the show, because I felt like you're this father who has this incredible experience in the film and television industry and in multiple ways, both in the faith-based camp, but also in mainstream as well. And so we could have a conversation. Good, good. I'm glad you saw the movie. Somebody did. <laughs> that was so good. I remember because David Oyelowo was in it. We had his wife on the show. Yeah. And David just did such a great job in that movie. But I just, I was also fascinated with the fact that that story of him holding that woman captive was like what sprung or what brought success to Rick Warren's book. And I hadn't known that until you shared that. Right. And all of a sudden overnight, the purpose driven life was a household name. Exactly. I mean, it sold, you know, millions and millions of copies as yeah. a result that story was really on everybody's mind nationally. And everybody was held captive, pardon the pun, yeah, by, no, for sure. by this news story of this guy holding, you know, Ashley Smith captive for seven hours in Atlanta, Georgia. And um, I think it was one of the first news stories like that where the whole country just starts to pay attention to it. Absolutely. It was like one of those. I, what was funny is I remembered that story, but I didn't know it was Rick Warren's book until years later because it was yeah. just one of those things that didn't, that part didn't, ever translate to me until you guys told the story through a movie. But I just, you know, it's such a gripping kind of thought that God uses so many different ways to um, just get a message that needed to be heard because it really helped reform identity in the church, yeah. which is Rick Warren's, you know, book and then uh, the movie itself. So, okay, well, let's go here because you've been around this industry for a long time. You've been, you've worn so many hats. Yeah. yeah. You've done so many things. You've done marketing, you've done production, you've done, you were, you know, the the CEO, the president of some different things. Where do we start? Gosh, well, you know, I'd like to say 
I did a bunch of those things because I was smart and navigated the industry well. The truth is, you know, I just was sort of zigzagging my way through. Yeah. And <clears throat> sometimes it was more about running from something than running to something. But um, unpack that. That's that's interesting. Like, what were you running from? Or what does that look like? Well, you know, look, it, it's it's a hard business, um, <clears throat> and it takes a while to figure it out. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I tell young people is you never have a bad meeting in Hollywood. You know, so you go to a meeting, you pitch your heart out, you have this wonderful meeting, everybody hugs, you leave, and then you go to follow up and nobody returns your phone call. <laughs> you know, that, yes. That's Hollywood. And yes. so um, so it, it's challenging, and particularly inside the companies. Yeah. So I worked for some big companies, and inside those companies, the management styles, the political environments can be really challenging. And it sometimes is strangely not about the content or the quality mm. of the content is not what's driving people's daily lives you know and uh, another thing i'll tell young people i'll say um okay look would we agree that the um currency of the kingdom of god is faith yeah and people would say yeah yeah i agree with that and then say okay well what's the currency of hollywood and they'll think about it and they'll get, well, it's money or it's stardom or it's, you know, they'll guess a bunch of things and they never get it right. Those things are all part of the answer. Yeah. But the real answer is leverage. It's like, I have something wow. that you need or that you think you need. And I really have leverage if more than one of you think you need what I have. And so it puts all this emphasis on, on packaging and alongside of that, and this relates to those corporate cultures, is, um, you know, what, what is the the dominant thought of an executive in Hollywood when they wake up in the morning. And some people say, well, how do I get, you know, grow the company? How do I get a hit show? How do I get shareholder value? And and the answer is, how do I avoid getting fired today? Wow. So there's that much, almost a fear culture. It really is. And and so, so now that I'm a seller and not a buyer anymore, and I can't always achieve this, you try, but I, I tell people when you bring your project in, and somebody's getting pitched, you know, 10 times a day. Yeah. And you got to get to the top of the pile somehow. Are they more likely to get fired for saying yes or for saying no to your project? And you have to find a way that they're more likely to get fired for saying no. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> what, a, what a concept. Yeah. Well, let's kind of go into your story because you, <clears throat> I mean, all that comes from this place where you've been in this for a while. Right. What motivated you as a Christian to be in this and then stay in it? Because I know... The types of projects you've done through the years, some are faith-based, some are non-faith-based. Right. It's it's a hard industry, like you're saying. So, like, what what kept you in the longevity? Because now it's popular to be both faith-based and non-faith-based. Right. But you were in it when it wasn't cool, when it wasn't <clears throat> popular. Where you're working on stuff like Veggie Tales and stuff that was just such a beautiful. I mean, like the Noah's Ark Veggie Tales. I know you worked on that. Yeah. I love that. Was one of my favorite ones. Yeah. And but at the same time. That wasn't super, it was popular, but it wasn't popular, you know, to be in that kind of a world. Where did this all start for you? Well, the very beginning. So I'm a Jewish kid from New Jersey Yeah. who I met Jesus in 1975. And by the way, just parenthetically, last I checked, he never said anything outside of a Jewish context. And, <laughs> That's true. and by the way, you could find almost anything he had to say in the Old Testament first. Wow. So, um, so... Um, I loved TV and movies growing up. You know, I was the kind of kid where, um, you know, 2 a.m. 
my dad would come in my room and, you know, th- th- those days there was like three networks and an independent station and a PBS station. And, you know, he'd come in at, at 2 a.m. and shut the snow off, you know, because <laughs> it wasn't 24 hours. And oh my and then I'd wake up and go, whoa, 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 I'm watching that, you know. And, the um, snow. <laughs> yeah, the snow. <laughs> and so, so I always loved it, but I really had no pathway to do anything about that. Um, as I said, I came to know Jesus in 1975 at the very first vineyard. And, oh, um, wow. yeah, there we was were there too in that early. Yeah. Ken Gullickson. Ken Gullickson, 1975 yeah. Beverly Hills women's club. Yeah. yeah. There was like 50 people in the Beverly yeah. Hills women's My, club. I was a little kid though. Uh, yeah, it was right after it was probably two years into it or three years into it. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. So, um, well, it's a little rabbit hole we'll spend a second on, but I'll, I'll, we'll get to the point of your question. Um, yeah, it started as a little Bible study in Larry Norman's um, condo when they started to have too many people and started Sunday services in the Beverly Hills Women's Club. And I had bumped into Keith Green at a party that he had been hired to perform at. Oh, wow. And Because um, he was like a rock and roll star who just converted into yeah, uh, he was, worship or, or Christian music. Right. He was the youngest person at 12 years old to ever have a recording contract. Oh, wow. It was like a three-year one. It was a long one. Right. And, wow. And so... He, um, so I went to see him the next night at a little club he was playing at. And then people started coming up to me going, you know, we'd come to church tomorrow. And I was like, nah, I don't think so. You know, and then finally, uh, cause God uses everything. Some cute girl comes up and says, why don't you come to church tomorrow? I went, okay. You know? So I, you know, Keith and I met and, um, I came to the Lord that day, got baptized in the ocean that day wow. and totally changed my life. Um, but uh, I had actually started as a pastor. So I got ordained at the vineyard and, you know, there was the challenge of the Jesus movement. So people were crazy enough to go, you know, Hey, if you're available, God can use you, you know? Yeah. And so at, as a two year old believer, I <clears throat> got shipped off to Prescott, Arizona to start the next vineyard after the first one. Oh, wow. And then, um, and then Ken had been holding, some services on the beach in Malibu. And so I came back to launch a church there and, you know, Bob Dylan was, came to my church and I taught in their school discipleship and taught Dylan. And, you know, I shudder to think what I taught him back then because I was so young. <laughs> That's crazy. But, um, so when I was in Malibu, um, uh, pastoring that little church one night, <clears throat> I heard the Lord speak and he said, um, leave full-time ministry continue to teach work and entertainment wow and i had no idea what what to do you know was there anybody that would understand that in your world at the time or was that pretty controversial oh i think you know it was pretty controversial stuff and and um you know my wife um is the daughter of a very famous singer rosemary clooney and her and her dad uh jose ferrer was a you know, Academy Award winning actor yeah. and won multiple Tony Awards. And so <clears throat> the only thing I really had was, you know, th- their willingness to introduce me to some people here or there. But, you know, once you walk through the door, you're on your own. Yeah. And so, um, yeah. so I started writing and developing things and trying to navigate my way through and working on crews and doing anything I could do, um, you know, until it led me to a real job. And what was the first real job? First real job was um, actually um, 
working as a development executive for a producer named Lee Vance, and Lee was um, producing Heart to Heart, that old TV oh, series. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so um, I had developed a relation cable. TV was the new technology of the day, you know, and, yeah. and cable was barely penetrated in the country yet. And they would do these um, conventions on the, out here called the Western Cable Show. So I was going down to explore, you know, what was going on with this new um, industry. And I met Tim Robertson, Pat's son, and they had CBN Cable Network. And, you know, it was, I don't know, in 15 or 20% of the country at that point. But it was one of the first cable networks. Yeah. And, and so we developed a relationship. And, um, and, and I went back to see Pat and said, um, look, why don't we do a TV series based upon the documented miracles of the 700 Club? Oh, and wow. <clears throat> Pat agreed to do that. He agreed to fund it, but I said, the pilot anyway, but I said, but here's the deal. Um, we can only do this if you agree that nobody will know that you're behind this because they're just going to put it in a little box and it's going to get categorized as some sort of a Christian thing associated with CBN. And we're never going to get the, we were doing it for t TV syndication back then. We're never going to get the wide distribution that we need. So he agreed to do that. And here I was, I, I, I think, you know, I'd made little things, but I was never produced a TV show before really. And so um, I, I partnered with another guy who was working with Lee Vance and we came under Lee's umbrella, oh, you know. Did so Lee understand what it was or he didn't care? Uh, he, I, I don't think he really cared, but, yeah. um, but, uh, you know, it was great to work for an experienced guy who yeah, absolutely. knew good writing from bad writing. And, you know, we hired young writers who we could afford and, you know, um, and it was a great experience, but that was the first real job. Wow. That's amazing. Well, tell me this, let's, let's go into, um, give me somewhere in your career that God showed up the most where you went this is why I'm in this. Like, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. Mm. Like, give me one of those stories. Well, I guess on a, <clears throat> I probably can find, um, <clears throat> small individual examples yeah. also, but I'd say, you know, the biggest thing for me really was God leading me to work for what was then CBN cable network that we turned into the family channel. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'd been um, developing and producing. I had a little company um, with a, um, a guy named Peter Engel, and Peter um, Peter produced. Uh, after we were together, he produced um, uh, "Saved by the Bell," so that's kind okay. of his claim to fame. You know, that's but, amazing. Um, and and so. Um, I got a phone call one day from a guy named Michael Little, who was president of CBN at the time. And he said, um, you know, look, the, the cable network is going to open up a West Coast advertising sales office. And would you be interested or willing to start and run that office? And I thought, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a creative guy. I want to be a producer. Yeah. I am producing. I don't see how this is me. And so I don't really think so. But when the minute he told me that and asked me that question, I knew in my gut that God was saying, do it. Oh. And so um, it took a while. It took me, you know, I don't know, a month or so of, um, you know, Peter and I weren't really, you know, we were going project to project. So he had an opportunity to go 
to NBC, which is where they've originally developed Saved by the Bell. Yeah. And I was looking for a place to land. And so, you know, I got hired at United Artists Television. And then they, in between the time they said yes and the time that I was going to start, they remerged with MGM. It was announced like over a couple of week period and that the MGM people were going to be the TV division. And so the job they just hired me for wasn't going to exist. And this is a typical Hollywood story. Yeah. Right. (laughs) You know, there there was three of those kinds of things that happened, you know, one at Fox, one at Disney, all within this little window of time. And finally I said, okay, God, I give up. I'll do it. You know? So, you know, I went and started that office. Well, well, frame like the ABC channel because no one really understood the family channel and then turned to ABC no one really understands that who's not behind the scenes. So like, what was the family channel? Cause right. it was such a profound moment in time for Christians who were all of a sudden given this incredible tool. Right. Well, I'll go back and give a little real context yeah. is, um, you know, Pat had the 700 club and they would, um, buy time for the 700 club on TV stations around the country. So it, it not only is costly, but there's all this logistical headache of getting mm-hmm. the show to those TV stations. And all of a sudden, satellite technology becomes a thing. Yeah. And so Pat has the foresight to realize that if I buy a transponder on a satellite, then they can just pull down the show and I don't have to bicycle these tapes all around the country wow. anymore. So he did that. And the, the first networks on satellite were CBN, um, it, uh, TBS and HBO. And, um, and so now we had 24 hours to fill with something. Yeah. So, you know, originally it started out with, you know, paid ministries buying time and they also owned a couple of TV stations. And so they realized, well, maybe we can apply an independent TV station model to this 24 hours that we have to fill. And so, you know, they started buying shows out of syndication and, you know, turning it into an advertising supported network um, with real entertainment programming and uh, real advertisers as this industry was growing. And you're trying to convince advertisers to spend any money on this little, you know, this little tiny network. And, um, you know, eventually uh, as it grew, um, we turned it into the family channel we saw an opportunity in the market because cable was an unregulated business, right? Mm. So every new technology, the growth tends to be driven by pornography, Okay. right? So cable TV, like, you know, Showtime and HBO, they were all this, you know, more hardcore stuff on those networks. Um, and it's happened almost with every new technology that comes yeah. on the scene. So we saw this opportunity where a lot of networks are going, we can do things that they can't do on broadcast television because of their license restrictions. We're saying we could be a G-rated network in an unregulated environment. Wow. So um, so we turned that into the family channel. And I would love to tell you how smart we were. But um, the truth is, we did a lot of good things. I think I did a lot of great things. I probably was responsible for, uh, along the way, when we got big enough to start thinking about original programming, I got asked to come and head that up. And so, so we moved from Los Angeles to Virginia beach where they were headquartered. And I probably was responsible for 
four or five hundred hours of you know original programming. That's amazing. Of developing it, having it produced, overseeing production, oftentimes raising money from around the world to complement our budget to get these things made, and um, and I, I did a lot of good work, yeah. but um, God really blessed that time. And it was sort of a moment in time because it was it was probably the most. Um, most might have been poured into this kind of family style, right? G-rated programming besides Disney. Yeah, I mean, it was probably the most. It, it, it probably you, was. You were the creative controller of that. That's pretty amazing. And and I was, you know, too incoherent to even realize what I was holding on to yeah. um, in that moment. But um, but you know, and the cable industry was growing so quickly that you know we we could have been a whole lot less smart and still succeeded. Well, well it was kind of like. Yeah, things are changing again right now, right? Right. So back to that. So um, how was the, the transition from that? Because that, then that got sold right. at some point. And so did that, were you part of that? Were you, were you, did you transition out of that before? What did that look like? Yeah, I, so this is really... Because um, we're showing lows and highs. So I want yeah. people to hear what the real life story, because a lot of times when people get involved, we get idealistic. And right. so we think, and I love how you're telling your story already, because it's like, you're not the hero of the story, you know, it's, which is mm -hmm. just true. I mean, it's just, we, we go through things we're navigating with God to the best of our ability. And it's good for people to hear like, Oh, and then there's these things, types of things happen too. And we have to allow God. It's Romans eight twenty eight. He works all for our good, but things happen. Right. So what yeah. happened in that story? So, so it, it, in leading into that, in my experience, again, remember I'm a Jewish kid yeah. who just, all I care about is God as he really is. Right. You, you look at the narrative parts of the Bible, people experienced God and then they told about it. Yeah. And, you know, we're busy trying to conform to what they told. But I'm more interested in the experience with God. Mm. And so um, so the network uh, eventually got, it, it went public. It was contributing too much money to the nonprofit. So it was threatening the nonprofit status. So a plan was orchestrated to spin that out into a separate entity okay. that, that went through a, a, a public offering and started acquiring other entertainment assets. And eventually that group of assets got sold to a guy named Haim Saban, who everybody will remember from Power Rangers fame, and, okay. um, and Rupert Murdoch, who was Fox, they, they together bought it um, for just under $2 billion. Wow. And um, I had left um, after the IPO, but before it got sold. But the truth is, um, from a spiritual perspective, I was frustrated personally on a lot of levels. And, you know, you go through those things and sometimes you need somebody alongside you to help you have some context, uh, which I didn't really have. Yeah. Um, I, I probably had it if I really searched for it, but I, I wasn't that smart. And so, um, so I left, but I knew when I left, I knew when I left, the Lord wasn't done with me there. Wow. And so, and I did it anyway. And so, um, and my wife who came along for the ride, she knew that it wasn't, you know, the right thing to do also. And, um, I went to work for, uh, the Hearst Corporation in New York and they have a, they, they, they had a very robust entertainment business. They owned a lot of 
ABC uh, TV station affiliates. They oh, okay. they owned um, at that time a third, which then became a half of Lifetime Network. They owned just under forty percent of A and E. They owned twenty percent of ESPN. They owned these King Feature Syndicate of characters, and so there was all this stuff that looked like you know you could work with to to build something really cool. But um, I remember the day we we had one show together. Um, and there was problems with it. So I knew I was going to work for them, but I was still working for the family channel and I had to go into New York and meet with them to try to figure out what to do with this show that was having problems. And it was the first time I walked into their offices ever. Mm. And I walked through the door and knew I made a mistake. Oh no. How long did that mistake last? Uh, two years. Wow. Yeah, two years. Wow. And did you have to, at that time you were living in Virginia Beach, did you have to move during that time? Yeah, so we moved, um, they, they were headquartered in New York, and we moved to Connecticut. And um, uh, and uh, it was it was a horrible time. Um, mm. and, you know, they're all, they're all good people, and they're smart people, and all that stuff, but it wasn't where God wanted me. And, yeah. and they recruited me under this notion of, using all those assets I talked about to create a lot of yeah. growth. But when I got there, I realized that that was the interest of the people in the division I was working. It wasn't the, it wasn't the, the will of the people who ran the Hearst corporation. Okay. And so it just was, a, it was a very, it, it's a, it's a private, I think it's still the largest privately held media company in the world. And it took me a while to realize that they're not in the business of dramatic growth. They were in the business of generating a dividend for a family. Yeah. And so, um, so what's that like for you guys? You're in Connecticut for two years. Your yeah. wife is now along for the ride, like you're saying, and you, yeah. you guys have kids. Yeah. We had uh, three boys, three boys at the time who yeah. were with you in Connecticut. Yeah. What was that like in the sense of like, how do, how do you come back from that? Like, where, where do you go from there? Yeah, well, in some ways it was really rough. In some ways it was great. You know, so my work experience was really rough and frustrating. Um, and uh, personally, it was kind of cool. We we bought this incredible farmhouse on two and a half mm. acres in Connecticut. And my wife would be jealous. Yeah, I mean, to this day, it's the, it's the, it. this day it's the best house we ever had. You wow. know, it's amazing. And so, um, uh, and I, you know, got my Jaguar convertible, which, you know, I drove to the train station and back. So, you know, it had like no miles on it by, by the time the lease was over. And, so um, you yeah, know, so there was some cool stuff, but um, it was frustrating for work. And so yeah. at the end of the two years, Hearst and I both understood that we were not right for each other. Mm. And so um, we picked up again and moved back to California because that's where the business really is. Yeah. And I didn't really know what I was going to do. Um, so uh, I, I'm, I'm going to, if you don't mind, take this all the way through to where I think there was a bit of a course correction. Yeah. And um, I, I had a consulting agreement with Liberty Media. For people that don't know, Liberty Media was what would be called the programming arm of the largest cable operator at the time, which was called TCI. That's now AT&T, really. And... Um, uh, and so I consulted with them on launching new channels. And the idea was if there was one that we launched that I wanted to run, I'd go run it. Wow. And then, um, eventually, um, through some real heartache 
times of, of soul searching of, you know, God, are you done with me? And what have I done? And, you know, where am I going to, you know, I, I knew that God had called me to this industry, but I felt like I had really by leaving too early and not really following, you know, what God wanted. I felt like, you know, who knows I'm in the deep in the desert. And so, um, eventually, um, I wound up, uh, at CBS, Les Moonves had just become the head of CBS. CBS had tried to hire me a couple times earlier. And I went to see him about something I was working on for Liberty Media. And he hadn't even moved over to CBS yet for, in his office. And I just said, look, here's what I'm working on. I just want to get you to say yes to this, and then I'm going to leave. You know. And he said, uh, well, when I saw you were on the call sheet, I thought, how do I get you on the team? And we started talking, and I eventually got to CBS where... I really felt like I was back on course with the Lord. Wow. So, yeah, I kind of have a question about that. I'm trying to formulate it because going through that sounds like a long kind of wilderness period. Yeah. And so what was the difference between when you felt like more, what was the issue? I'm trying to ask maybe what was the motivator? Was it obedience that caused you to feel like on track with the Lord? Do you feel like it took time to kind of rebuild the pathway back in? Or do you feel like Mm. it was your own experience to see him in that season in the desert season where you maybe you could have seen him clear now that you have the maturity of it or give me some language there yeah well uh without opening up too much of a long conversation I, i've been walking with the lord for more than 40 years i'm still not sure that i ever see him clearly enough in the in the desert or in the groping in the darkness times yeah but um but I, I just felt, I felt home, you know, I just, yeah. it was just a feeling, you know, and I just felt like I was where God wanted me again. Yeah. And I, uh, and I thrived there, you know, I was sort of the golden boy. I got promoted every year and, um, and it was a, it was the family channel and CBS were two of the best experiences of my career. Wow. So what's, what are you working on now? What does life look like right now? So now I'm uh, an independent producer, which is where all executives go out to pasture. And, uh, <laughs> and um, but I've got a lot of projects, a lot yeah. of great projects. You know, you referenced Captive. I, you know, I've done that. That's, that's actually the last movie I produced. Okay. So it's been a few years. Um, but I have a lot of probably, I don't know, be- between 15 or 20 really strong projects with, you know, great writers and things like that. But the business is at a point where, you know, if you're not one of the big companies Mm -hmm. and you're not one of a handful of people that the industry considers to be a big star, then you have to get those kinds of elements together. Back to what I said earlier about leverage. You've got to take these great stories and package them in a way that it's hard for somebody to say no. Yeah. So that's my day. That's my, and I'm, I'm involved in some technology startups and some other things entrepreneurially, but in, in terms of the entertainment industry, that's my life every day. Yeah. What do you think God has for you left in the entertainment industry? What you, what's your passion kind of drive towards it right now? Gosh, I was hoping you could tell me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. you, you, you know, here's the truth. Every day I wake up and I think... Should I be doing something else at this point because of the dynamics of the industry? And, um, and then 
I'll bump into something and you know, I, I love my projects. They're stories. Yeah. Stories are transmitters of truth. Yeah. And and so I love every one of those stories. And, you know, I just, uh, I was telling you earlier, I, I went back for this weekend uh, to speak on a panel yeah. for this Culture Shapers Summit, this whole kind of seven mountains strategy for us Hillman. And, um, and while I was there, another guy was speaking and in the in the context of his speech, he told a story about one of his relatives. And as he's telling it, I'm jotting a note to his wife saying, have him call me after this because I need to make this movie. You know, wow. so amidst all the discouragement and all the pushing big boulders up a hill, those are the moments that keep you going. Wow. No, that's super helpful. It's super enlightening. How about the, maybe we'll talk about this in a second portion of the interview, but uh yeah, I think I'll wait. I'm going to talk about disruptors a little bit yeah. about, about the new technologies that have come because you've lived through one disruptor, which is cable. Right. What about the new disruptors, you know, social media and, the, and right. the whole internet media? So we'll talk about that next. Wow. Now, this is super amazing to hear your story. I mean, you've been in this and you've been fighting an uphill battle. I think some of what you've done is a forerunner for people who are getting placed now that who don't have necessarily the same resistance stories that you had to walk through for decades. And you know, they're, they're reinforcements to what God's doing in the entertainment industry, but it's almost like those people who get saved later, but the the price is the same in the sense that the pay is the same, but the price was different. Right. You paid a price. And I think that the good news is I think you're going to inherit from some of these people as well who show up and have instant favor and instant credibility in some ways. And you've been around and God says, well, I'm going to also use you because they need you as well. And so I think there's something about, I've watched the handholding between people who are like fathers and mothers in the industry and yeah. they're still, they're not passe, they're not irrelevant. They're actually more relevant now. But at the same time, there's these new things that are emerging that I think we're all going to need each other, to, especially in film and television because of what's coming down the pipeline. Yeah, I'm excited. It, it's it's um, just to put a button on that. Um, early in my career, the Lord helped me understand that I had sort of a John the Baptist kind of a mission. Mm. So when you talk about forerunning, that's exactly, you know, how I saw it. Yeah. And there was a lot of this breaking up the ground. We were friends with Keith Green and Bob Dylan. That's yeah, right. Were, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so there's a lot of breaking up the ground and, and, uh, paving the way. And, um, and, I will say to people, oftentimes, you know, the, the, everybody think the, a lot of people come to Hollywood and they say that they're called to Hollywood. Yeah. Two things I'll say to them: I, I want you to come back and talk to me about that calling in twenty years. That's the first thing, and the second thing is: Do you know the difference between calling and ambition? Because mm-hmm. we sometimes take ambition, and there's nothing wrong with ambition. Yeah. But we sometimes take ambition and put this Christian lingo on it. Yeah, like a spiritual and, spin. And now it's calling. Yeah. And so what I'll say to them is, I, I, I can talk for an hour on this, which I won't, but um, I'll go, what's the difference between killing and murder? Because in the Bible, God orders one and he forbids the other. And the, the shortcut is the difference is motive. Mm-hmm. And so that's the difference between calling and ambition. Mm-hmm. So as a John the Baptist type, am I just as happy if somebody else gets to do what I dreamed of doing? That's calling. Wow. No, it's super powerful. Wow. Now you've left us with a lot. Thank you so much for this mm. interview. I think it's just, there's some profound thoughts on it mm. and I appreciate you. Yeah, you too. 
Everyone needs someone to process their prophetic journey with them. And we have created a new online mentoring platform where you can grow at your own pace, where we help you to develop your own spiritual journey of hearing God's voice. I want to help be your mentor. We have videos, interactive webinars, over five new videos each week. They're going to advance you in your journey and authority. We have so many special opportunities in this platform that you don't want to miss it including all of our other e-courses coming for free when you subscribe. Come grow with me. Let me train you in your ability to hear from God and interpret what you hear and really bring applications so that your real life is affected by your spiritual faith. Go to bowlsministries.com and sign up under e-courses. So here we go. We're going to play a game. Uh oh. It's called Something Real or Something Fake, all related to things you've worked on or been involved with, which is Super fun. Okay. We're going to see how smart you really are. <laughs> <laughs> well, you won't have to go far to figure that out. <laughs> well, you worked on VeggieTales and um, helped to get the story of millions of families, which is amazing. Mm. And I have two fruit and vegetable facts for you. And you have to decide which one's real oh, and boy. which one's fake. One of the favorite, uh, someone helped me with some of these. And one of the favorite ones that they came up with was for an animator who almost worked on VeggieTales at one point. And it was, the, it was a false fact that they had said, which is, and he, he actually believed it. I think he voted for it, which was, and I might be wrong here. If you guys saw the show, he, he might have voted for the other one, that people were not allowed to eat fruits or vegetables at VeggieTales Studios because they didn't want kids or people to be traumatized by what would happen if kids were walking through on a tour. And he believed that that was true. <laughs> so that would be a little extreme. So that's not that extreme. Here we go. So mm-hmm. number one, and don't answer until you heard both. Tomato, actually a fruit. It took a ruling by Supreme Court in 1893 to make the tomato a vegetable. The lawsuit was all about money. There was no tariffs on imported fruits, but there sure were on vegetables, and America wanted their tariff on these yummy fruits. That's number one. Number two, according to popular food dietitians, juicing your fruits and vegetables suggests that the juices and fruits and vegetables are easier to digest and release more nutrients even more than their whole food counterparts. Which one is true and which one is false? I would say these are good questions. I, I'm going to say I'm going to just say the second one is true. The second one is false. Ah! I got you. This is so good. It's actually it's equally as healthy to juice or not juice because the fibers in it that goes along with your fruits and vegetables are equal, according to the dietitians of America. But the number one is true. Can you believe there's a lawsuit just for money? I actually, I actually do believe that. And that's, <laughs> of course you do. I, like, I do. <laughs> I deal with money all the time. Yes. Yeah, I do believe that. Areas. Okay, I have another one. Okay, you were connected to the Family Channel and 700 Club. So 700 Club, which you weren't directly connected to probably, <clears throat> right. but was in that family. Why was it called the 700 Club? I have two facts about that, and you have to decide which one was true. Maybe you know this, so maybe it'll help. Number one, Pat Robertson had been saved and sober 700 days And after that, he wanted to give others the opportunity to experience powerful stories of salvation that only happened to their Christianity. That's number one. Number two, to keep the station on the air, uh, WYAH produced a special telethon edition of the show. For the telethon, Robertson set a goal of 700 members, each contributing $10 per month, which was enough to support the station. I think number two is true. So the one with uh, $10 each per month, Mm -hmm. you were correct. Yeah. So I don't think he ever had a need to be sober, but that was kind of a... Could have been tricky if you yeah. didn't know, but you probably knew more. You, I, you know I, how these I did. Work. I did know that one. Okay, you did know that one. Okay, well, okay. I mean, you worked there. Here we go. So you are a producer, and you want to make powerful moving stories. I have two facts about movies that were produced in the very beginning that are still critically acclaimed today. One of them's real, one of them's not. So you can tell me which fact is true and which fact isn't. Widely regarded as the best movie of all time, Citizen Kane examines the complicated relationship between a rich dying man and his 
sled. That's right. Rosebud is a sled. Sorry if I spoiled it for you, but you really need to get out more. Number two. One of the first movies ever made was just about dogs running to see if they ran with four feet off the ground or not. It won no awards, but it's still considered brilliant by critics around the world. Well, that's kind of a tricky question. So I'll say number one is true. It is true. I, I literally never knew that. I, I, I knew that, but where it gets tricky is when you say what it's actually about, because I think start thinking about subtext, but, um, but, uh, I'm very relieved because you might have just cost me my career in that moment. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I don't know if this is, I didn't know that. And I maybe don't have a career in this. But actually, the second one was about horses. And it was true. If uh-huh. I just said horses instead of dogs. Horses, they did this video. And they actually saw the four legs of horses go off the ground. It was at the same time. Yeah. At the same time, which was yeah. cool. Not dogs. Okay, mm. last one. Last one. Here we go. New technologies. Here we go. One of these is true. Google Chrome is about to launch 20 new TV series based on comebacks and popular spinoffs with characters from Friends, Seinfeld, and even the Smurfs reboot. They're rolling this out in December 2020 and have $200 million a month in a marketing plan. Mm-hmm. Number two, Netflix is spending $200 million a month on creating series, but their staple shows that make up more than 75% of their views are not originals, but include shows like Friends in the Office. So number two is true. It is true. Number two is true. Yeah. You knew that right away, though, because that's like yeah. your business to know that. Uh, yeah, and and Google tried to be in the business of creating shows and failed and is backing out. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't even know that. I just knew that I was so surprised when I heard that Friends was the number one show. Yeah. And they just paid this year, 2019, they paid $200 million just for that show to be on because they mm-hmm. would lose up to something like 20 or 30% of all viewership of Netflix without that show. So I, I uh, when I was at CBS, I did a show that we hired an actress who Les Moonves told me was the other choice for Jennifer Aniston's role oh, in Friends. Wow. And so Jennifer Aniston is the recipient of all that new money coming in. Oh my God. And this girl's not. They're making like $20 million a year off Netflix. It's crazy. Each one of them. Yeah. It's wild. It's wild. I'm like, why didn't we sign up for that show? I don't know. But, <laughs> but, I, but I think they need to be my new best friends. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Thanks for playing the game. Yeah, it was fun. I sure hope you're enjoying exploring the industry, our brand new podcast in the Exploring series. We've explored the prophetic, now exploring the industry, and we have secret ones coming up as well, which is really fun. Well, it's listeners like you who partner to us that make us be able to enable us to be able to make these incredible podcasts and to create conversations that show you what God's doing behind the scenes in people's lives, especially in the entertainment industry where you don't normally get a God vantage point. And I love that these incredible people in film, television, music, and all the other industries are sharing such vulnerable stories of how God is doing things in their life and changing the world around them. And we want to continue to make these incredible conversations and to be able to speak this narrative into the body of Christ so we would have faith for what God can and will do. So please join our partnership. Or if you just want to give a one-time donation, go to bowlsministries.com and click on partner. Welcome back to Exploring the Industry. I'm Sean Bowles, and I'm here with Terry Botwick. And I've so enjoyed our time together. And now we're going to do a segment about just talking about the industry and about what God's doing. And then also things that you're seeing as far as trends and things that, you know, affect producers and 
the whole film world, television world. And, and one of the things I was thinking about, because you were there when cable disrupted the whole TV world. Right. I love how you told the story about, you know, your dad would turn off the TV when it was snow. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden you have cable, which is 24 hours. And I'm sure that was hard to come up with that much content. I mean, just for one channel, it'd be so many hundreds of hours. But now we have Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime, and we have another, not just one type of disruption, but many types of disruptions. How is that affecting everything? What do you see? Well, it, it's in some ways there's a, there's a whole lot in that question. Yeah. Well, I want to I even want to do it from like a Christian. What do you think God's doing in it? Oh, okay. Well, that's that's very interesting. Um, the first thing I'll say is, whenever a new technology disrupts, it creates opportunity. Yeah. So now you have to figure out how to navigate that opportunity, and as we were talking about earlier, get people what they think they need but it does create opportunity. And so when I talk to young people, one of the things I'll say to them when they're trying to figure out, well, how do I break into the business and all of that? And I'll just say, well, go where the technology is because mm -hmm. they can't afford the other guys yet, yeah. and, but they can't afford you and you get a chance to stretch. So, um, so the first thing is I think it's about opportunity. There are, there are other aspects of it though that um, I think are troubling, you know? Mm -hmm. So... What, what happens is uh, because of something we were talking about earlier where, you know, an executive says, well, you know, bring me a big star because even if the show doesn't work out, I can't get fired for hiring that big star. Yeah. Um, so everybody who's a big star runs into those places that are paying a lot of money, bigger budgets than would happen on broadcast television and, mm. and greater creative freedom. In the movie business, it takes forever to get a movie made. But in a television environment, thing it's churning, you know, chewing up content, so it happens quickly. Yeah. So everybody's running there, and even even really good people who worked in TV are getting boxed out of jobs because all the feature people are now taking oh, wow. those jobs, yeah. and the people at those networks like Netflix are thinking, well, that gives us a cinematic auspices for these shows, and so, um, you know, we, we prefer those people. You know, we're going to hire the big stars. So it's always a mixed bag, but. Um, the interesting thing is, you know, technology's also created a lower barrier to entry. Yeah. You know, so somebody... Obviously, like, we're doing a show like this because like, there's podcasts. Right. So we're, And there's video podcasts and there's YouTube and we would never do this on right. 700 Club itself or whatever, you know, like on, or CBN, I mean, I said 700 Club, but CBN itself. Right. And uh, Back in the day. And there, right. There are people who have sold companies for million, hundreds of millions of dollars that basically started you know, a series of YouTube channels because the barrier to entry was low. Wow. And used to be, you know, you couldn't start a television network if you didn't have at least a hundred million dollars or more, you know? Wow. And so, um, so that creates opportunity, you know, and, you know, as much as we can talk about things that happen in professional circles and how to navigate that, if somebody has a, a, a fresh voice and a fresh point of view, and they know how to tell a story, it will get somebody's attention. Yeah. Well, and that's one of the things that I think you, from the beginning, you wanted to be a creator of stories, and now you're producing. You said you had quite a few stories that you're just holding on to and looking for the leverage or looking for those points. Yeah. What's that like as far as, you know, you're a day in the life of Terry this year, as far as, you know, you're having to do everything from navigate to getting the right people involved you said you had some good writers you have to get the right talent you have to get the right mm -hmm. and then you once you get all that and you get the finances then you have to go find the exact right place to shoot it 
and then you have to go to the, do the back end, the whole marketing thing, the whole. So what's it like today? Like, you know, for people who are saying, I'm going to produce a movie, a lot of people who would think of that, they're not thinking of the big picture, so right. to speak. Well, one of the things I would say to someone who says, I want to produce a movie is why? <laughs> I mean, I mean, seriously. Let me like, discourage <laughs> you first. Let me, <laughs> well, let me talk you out of it. And if I can't talk you out of it, it's probably God. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I literally think of every, as much as I love every one of my projects, but I literally think of each one of them as a war. And, because wow. um, they're hard. And when you make a movie, it's hard. Um, quick story on the last day of shooting of Captive, we were, um, our financier was a billionaire from Mexico. Wow. And six weeks before shooting, he called me up and he said, Hey, Terry, I think there's some money I can get from the Mexican government, so I want to shoot half the movie in Mexico. And I was like, You realize we shoot in six weeks? And he said, Yeah, but I want to do this. Wow. And so we had to change our entire crew plan, figure out how to take half the movie to Mexico. Um, it was very complicated. And, but we did it. And on the last day of shooting, we're uh, in a location outdoors. Uh, it's a night shoot, and we're like an hour in the middle of nowhere from Mexico City. And I'm about to leave the hotel to go to location, and the the uh, line producer the, from Mexico calls me and says, um, "Terry, we have a problem. We just lost the location." So I said, "Oh my gosh!" So my first reaction was, "Okay, how much?" And she said, "No, no, no. It's not about money." I said, "You know, look, I don't want to offend you. This is Mexico." How much? And she said, no, it's really not about money. It's a, there's this, this uh, feud between two landowners and the guy who signed our location agreement, the actual owner who he works for, just said, we're not doing this. And so we can't go on the location. And so I rush out there. You know, we have a large crew of people. Um, we can't afford to move that company very far. And still, it's not only the last day of shooting and it's not only a brutal night shoot where we're making rain creating rain and all this stuff oh, it's also um the next day the next morning when we finish and get on airplanes is the day before thanksgiving so we don't have a lot of wiggle room <laughs> and we start looking at all these locations you know as you know around the area that we could do and and sean it was literally because of these two landowners if we are standing in this one spot we're okay if we can manage to work out the logistics. If we cross over like three feet, I look up and there's guys literally standing there with Uzis pointing at us. No. And so making a movie's hard. Now in those moments, do you ever have like have you have you I'm sure you've had some stories where it's like serendipitous or all of a sudden you're just like, God put us here. I followed a nudge in my heart of the Holy Spirit and we have a different result because of that as a producer. <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, I, I I won't say that about that situation. You know, I mean, we just worked it out. You know, we found a spot that we could make it work, and we made it work. Yeah. And um, but um, well, on that same movie, um, and this is kind of eerie. So Brian Nichols, who had had killed um, the uh, the court reporter, the judge. And uh, shot a, a, a detective, not a detective, a um, an officer in the court. Later, killed another um, uh, another man in order to steal his truck. Um, all that happened before he abducted Ashley Smith. And um, 
So we're shooting this scene and we're making everything as authentic as we can. And I get a text message out of the blue. I don't even know how this woman got my phone number, but I get a text message out of the blue from a woman who says that she's related to, she's the, the sister-in-law of the, uh, of the agent um, uh, who got shot and killed for his truck. Wow. And so, um, and she, she had very, very mixed emotions about, a lot of people were happy that, that were involved, that we were shooting because it was kind of a closure for them. Yeah. She was very mixed emotions about it. And so I invited her to come and we met and she said to me, you know, we have uh, my, you know, her husband was this guy's brother. She says, we actually have the actual truck that was stolen. Oh my gosh. And so, um, even though we had a truck that looked just like it, I bought that truck from them and wow. we, and, and she literally delivered that truck. We were set up to shoot that scene. She drove up, parked it at the curb 30 minutes from, from the time that we have to shoot. And, um, I mean, it was so much that you open up the glove compartment. It still had a roll of money in it that was there that night of the incident. Wow. And so... That must have been so much closure for them as a family, though. Incredible. I mean, all of a sudden, they they get rid of something that is a reminder of so much pain. Yeah, and we were able to put some money into a foundation that they had started, and, you know, it worked out cool. Now, did they did they buy into the fact that he had gotten saved and that the whole thing was a happy ending in that sense? Or was that to them? Did well, they... it, it, it's still bittersweet, yeah. right? Because, you know, um, that agent lost his life. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and so... I just don't think of that as a filmmaker. I'm not... I guess I haven't thought about that part of the story when you're telling real stories. Like, you're right. having to deal with all of the real people and all the real emotions involved versus when you're telling... Right. You know, just... Yeah. Well, we shot in Charlotte, and and we made Charlotte as if it was Atlanta, okay. Because the people in Atlanta still were so bruised from that story, wow. they really didn't want us to shoot there. Wow. And so, um, but it, it, we we rented the courthouse in Charlotte, and many people who worked for the U.S. Marshals, whose office was in that courthouse, knew the people who were involved okay. and the people who got shot and killed that day in Atlanta. Some of them actually worked there before they came and worked in, in Charlotte. So we were surrounded by people who were actually involved in the real story. Yeah. I think it's interesting that you have a pastoral background mm-hmm. because you need that in that context. Cause if you're just going to be a business person, you'll run over people that are part right. of God's story. They're part of who the story is being made for. It's not just the people who are going to view the movie. It's the people who are, their lives are getting changed by the movie being made. No, it's, and it's, it's so true. amazing. If you don't, have the foresight to think about the whole picture, you know? Yeah. And I, I've always looked at producers as kind of the, for lack of better words, like the apostolic guys, the entertainment industry, they're the ones mm. who are the builders and the ones who like set the government of it, you know, in, in a lot of ways. And because of that, if you work with a bad producer, it can actually ruin your whole career. Yeah. We're, we're actually you know? the first guys to buy lunch and the last guys to get paid. But, um, <laughs> yes. but you know, the, the, the other thing about that, when we were, screening the movie for marketing purposes we had a screening in atlanta um i got to know uh the widow of so the the agent that i said was shot and killed for the truck i got to know his widow also which was amazing closure for her i got to know the widow of the judge who was shot and killed wow 
And when we screened the movie for marketing purposes, it was such a racially charged story. People showed up for the screening and there was still all these years later, this, this anger and this racial tension underneath for the people who were there. Wow. So you could feel it in the screening. And, um, I can say, honestly, not only was it a great joy to introduce these two women to that audience, but that night, that screening completely diffused that racial tension among those people. Wow. That's insane. Yeah. I'm thinking of, um, did you have the actors there at the screening at all? Uh, not at that one. Not at that one. Not I was just wondering, one. did like David Oyelowo who played the one who held her captive, right. you know, did he get a chance to interact with any of those families at all? Well, he did. Um, I mean, he, he definitely met, um, uh, Candy Wilhelm, who's the widow of the yeah. agent who died. Um, and you know, it was weird because she came on the set. I invited her to the set and introduced her to David and David was great. And so they're taking some pictures together and I'm thinking, how bizarre is this? It is so bizarre. Right? We're shooting a movie that involves the killing of her husband, and she's taking a picture with the actor of the representing the guy who killed her husband. It's like but this David, is so weird. I mean, no better person than David, right? No better person. Because he's just such a he loves God and loves people so well. Right. And so I mean like and and this kind of has a ministry background. A lot of people don't know that, but I mean he has like just yeah. you know, he's he's as amazing as any pastor I've ever met. But I mean the fact that he was in the movie representing that right so wow like he did such a good job and he was so artic he's such an articulate guy yeah his performance is amazing kate mara's performance is amazing you know i think it would have been completely different movie without those two yeah let's talk about because you were involved with the children's series veggie tales yeah and you were really involved with it like you were when they became their most successful i believe was when you were in that company and um what was that like as far as being in veggie tales when it was kind of one of the buzz the buzz stories of Christianity at the time, you know? Yeah. Well, interestingly, um, it was the best of times and the worst of times because the company was very, very, very successful. Uh, and at the same time, and Phil Vischer, who, f who founded VeggieTales, created VeggieTales along with a guy named Mike Naraki. But Phil, um, he wrote about it, so I think I'm free to talk about this stuff. But he had made a lot of kind of founder-driven mistakes. And yeah. so when I got there, I had no idea that um, the company was in such trouble. You know, there yeah. was, when it, the day that I walked in, uh, my first day in their Chicago, at that time headquarters, there was, I think, 380 people on staff. Wow. And they were hiring people as fast as they could. For one show. For, for f yeah, and, and, they had stopped making the half-hour videos so they could focus on the movie. So they basically shut off the revenue and turned on the expenses. Wow. And I sat down with the acting CFO, and he took me through the numbers. And I was like, do they realize they're basically insolvent? And so it, it, it was a very trying time. But at the same time, you know, to your point, it's I, I would walk through. So I had this you know, Bob and Larry leather jacket. And, um, <laughs> I and I, I walked through the Chicago O'Hare airport, one of the busiest airports in the country. And it, you know, look, I had come from CBS. I used to, you know, manage the Grammy awards. I mean, just like yeah. all sorts of big things. 
And I walked through Chicago Air- Airport with a Bob and Larry jacket, and you think I was one of the Beatles. It was amazing, <laughs> you know. Awesome. And I, I, it was the first time I realized, I, you know, maybe this is bigger than I realize. You know. Yeah, and it's interesting because, like, one of my homes, I do a show on TBN, and they just bought out VeggieTales. Right. And it's really, they, they were like, this can't die. Like, this, there's something in this. It's, it's a household name. It's something that brought so much joy. But it had such a clean message to it that was obviously scriptural. Yeah. And so I'm glad that it went somewhere. I'm glad, yeah. you know, because I know Netflix tried it out. It didn't work yeah. very well. And yeah. then I, I'm glad it went somewhere with Phil kind of involved again. Right. Which is really amazing. Right. But um, but is that is that ever hard to see, like, a property you worked on that you love that you're not involved with anymore? Or is it just kind of like, oh, it's a different phase of life. I'm just so happy <clears throat> that they're over there. No, it, it's hard because, you know, you they're like your children. Yeah. And so... It, it, you know, on a spiritual level, I, I just think the Bible's full of paradox. You know, like, like wisdom and faith. You know, mm-hmm. do I, do I, is it give me this day my daily bread or store up for later, which you know Proverbs tells yeah. us to do. They're both true. You know, and yeah. and I think another paradox is when you're trying to create content or you've been involved in telling these stories, you have to put your whole heart and all of your passion behind it. But yet at the same time, you know, you can be rejected by the person with the purse rings or whatever. And mm-hmm. you, so you have to hold it completely loosely at the same time. And, um, it, it, you know, Captive, I said every movie's a war. Captive, I'm really proud of that movie. It didn't perform the way we wanted it to yeah. for a lot of reasons that I could articulate in the way it was released and marketed by the studio. But, but, you have to be able to both throw your whole self into it and at the same time hold it really loosely. Yeah, and I think, uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of the companies too, like VeggieTales, scale so fast. Yeah. And yeah, Apple's entertainment industry all the time is you scale for three to five years and then there's a drop off or there's there's not the same level of projects for a while and then if you can stay in, there could be again. And so a lot of people might hear a story like that and go, how irresponsible. It might make some snap judgments, but I mean, this is what we see over and over and over right. is companies have one property that sustains the entire company. Yeah. Even some of the big, you know, the big, like Avengers right now mm-hmm. is sustaining that whole company right. because of just, you know, what Marvel became and is in trouble of failing if they don't maintain that. Now that Disney's bought it, it's a little different, but if they don't maintain that kind of success, you know, it's just interesting. Like when you have, projects if you don't have the right managers and the right business behind it it's right. going to fail and, and you know the, on two levels in the case of veggie tales um you know nobody wanted it in the beginning and phil put out this a direct response ad in, in i think christianity today and somebody at the district at word records district christian distrib- you know which is christian distribution arm um that they were doing dvds at the time yeah. and they found that ad and they looked at it and they wound up doing a deal, and eventually, there was an agreement with Lyric Studios, which was the company that did Barney, okay. to bring it into Walmart and places like that. But they, both sides, didn't know. Like the Lyric, that contract never got signed, and it wound up becoming a, a, a legal case that I was mm-hmm. involved in. But um, on the Lyric side, one of the reasons it didn't get signed is because. They weren't sure what was going to happen when you go into Walmart. If you know when you bring your your product into Walmart, they buy three days worth, and if it doesn't sell like crazy, you're gone. Yeah. You know. And on the VeggieTale side, Big Idea didn't know well what's it going to be like to work with these people. So there was a little bit of concern on both sides. And but what happened was there was all this pent up demand that nobody knew about, and it started flying off the shelves. So 
in fairness to Phil, if you're a young guy and this is the first thing you've kind of really created yeah. and all of a sudden you're this gigantic hit, you, you don't know that it's going to stop and you don't know. And it's, there was only the single biggest mistake at that time when the Jonah movie was in production was they had hired people to be part of the company fixed overhead because he wanted to build this animation studio and they should have been hired by the film as a project mm. because you have gaps in time and you can't afford to carry that massive overhead yeah. during those gaps in time. But um, it was a painful experience for him to go through as well. Yeah. And I think you get big enough to where you either go forward or you go backwards. You can't stay where you're at. Yeah. And if you don't have the right people around you. And I think that's one of the things we learned in the entertainment industry is that if there's a commercial success on something, in film or television, you need the right advisors right away. You need a Terry right away. Well, well, well because because the, the other thing that happens is, is, you know, the the business is built of, on all this derivative stuff, yeah. right? Somebody does something first, the audience responds, and everybody else wants to do something just like it. Yeah. But even the guys who did it first, you start thinking about, okay, how many Lego TV shows can I make? How many Lego movies can I make? And if you do them in too short a period of time, you oversaturate the market yeah. and you don't build this, this need, this demand for it to come again. And so um, something that could be much more long-lived becomes short-lived because you've oversaturated too quickly. Yeah, no, that makes so much sense. So let's go back to your projects. You're working on a number of projects. <clears throat> what, are, what are a tipping point that people should expect from either god or just the the way projects work for something to get actually launched you, you're incubating it right now you're incubating how many projects like 12 15 20 yeah okay yeah <laughs> a lot of I those mean, yeah lot of those numbers there's well it's it's probably i was going to say about 14 but i've just started another two or three so okay so you're incubating like maybe 20 projects yeah so what's the what's a typical tipping point for those projects does it start with the funding or does it start more with um the people getting placement, like the celebrity attached, or is it all different? Well, it, it, it can be all different, and it can be, you know, there there was a point that I, where I had some investment in my company, so I was able to write some checks and get some really good writers to work on projects. Yeah. Um, I don't have that funding right now. So I either have to do enough development myself to entice somebody to want to get on board, because if you're the writer... You know, what you really want is who's going to pay me right now. Yeah. And the, the way the industry's worked out is if a writer goes out and pitches a story, well, to pitch that story, you're doing 80% of the work. Mm. You know, you have to know the story in order to pitch it. You just haven't written the screenplay yet, you know. Okay. So, so much of the work has been done. So writers are, they're, they, they, they need to somehow get paid while they're doing all this work to try to get somebody to pay them. And so, um, and the agents, of course don't want anybody doing anything for free because they make nothing. Right? So, <laughs> yeah. so they, they, they can be um, a, a really big roadblock to getting something to go forward because what they care about is getting their 10%. So, yeah. um, so you have to find a way to navigate through the system, all of that stuff. And, and I find that in each project at some point, like, look, I, I have a number of projects with a guy named David Franzoni, who's an amazing writer. He wrote Gladiator. He wrote Amistad. Nice. And two of my favorites, right? There. Two, right. Two, two yeah. and everybody's like top 10 list. And 
and he's won an Oscar, and you'd think, okay, well, it's a David Franzoni script, and you'd be surprised how hard it is to get someone on the other side. People don't read anymore, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah. um, so in each project, something will happen that starts to give it some momentum, and it starts yeah. to feed on itself. Because we talked about Captive, really, in a lot of ways, David was that catalyst. He desperately wanted to play this part of Brian Nichols, and Honestly, I wasn't so sure in the beginning, not because he's not a good actor, but just it was physical size kind of a thing. Oh, okay. And and um, uh, he was very passionate about it. And we made the decision to go with David. And David and his energy became, and he said, well, you know, I'm friends with Kate Mara. What about her? And and then, you know, one thing leads yeah, to another yeah, that way. She was great. Yeah, and she just, was so good. So each project. I was even surprised that both of them were in it, honestly. Right. Not and, in a negative way, just like, oh, wow, these guys took time to be in this really telling story. Right. Because they were gripped by it. Right. And look, well, I won't say that. I was going to, I was going to. Uh, it's you know you go through the process of getting the movie to really be ready to be a movie and yeah. so the fact that both those actors stuck with it through that process when yeah. okay right now the script isn't really ready yet but they stayed with it that's a pretty impressive now I've, I've heard that from different producers and directors that it's sometimes a miracle how long some of the talent will stay attached to something yeah when it's going through its ups and downs right what's your sweetest spot as a producer where you enjoy it the most like what when is the the best spot for you well gosh i love a lot of it to be honest i mean i love the process of creating the story mm -hmm. um, i love that process i hate banging down the doors of agents and all that stuff to yeah. try to get somebody to pay attention to that story i love the process of making the movie um because there's so many choices that have to get made and one of the uh, a couple things i'll tell people you have to get people to want to make the same movie so the most important thing you could do from the very beginning when you're hiring department heads and different people is have clear creative vision yeah and if everybody signs on to the same creative vision that frees them up to bring their own talents to executing mm -hmm. and every choice, whether it's the wardrobe, the location, every choice has to serve the story. Yeah. But they may have a much better idea than I would have had, but as long as they're serving the story, we're good. So, um, so that part's really fun. And, um, and I like marketing the movie, you know, I like, I love, um, you know, there's always that moment when it's going to go into release in TV, right? It's all about well. In in commercial TV, it's all yeah. about the ratings. Yeah. So, you know, uh, right after I got to CBS, um, I put a show on there. So a producer came to me and said, "You know, when the Vatican did some testing on the Shroud of Turin to see how old it was, they also took a blood sample and did a DNA test, and we'd love to do a special." And I and I thought. I, 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 you can't prove it's Jesus' blood or not, but I have a, a promo that says, is this the blood of Jesus in a show that I could put on around Easter time? And so we did that special. And uh, without going down the rabbit hole of all the things about the Shroud of Turin, we did that special. And, um, but I couldn't get it on the schedule mm. right before Easter. So it winds up going on the schedule the Wednesday after Easter. Oh, wow. And I'm thinking, I'm dead. You know, this is just terrible. And, um, you know, the special did well enough. But 
in your life as a network executive, you know, the 6 a.m., first thing you do is look at the ratings. And the 6 a.m., you understand if it's going to be a good day or if it's going to be a bad day or maybe your last day. <laughs> and so this show goes on and it did well enough. And I show up at the office and, um, you know, it's already a controversial thing for me to have put on the air. Yeah. And I, and I, I walk past Les Moonves' office and he looks up at me and he goes, Hey, I go, yeah, he goes, you dodged a bullet last night. Oh, wow. So, but that's, you know, it's a competitive industry. It's so funny because the, the types of shows I get offered all the time consistently for the last 12 years that I've been here is things like that. You be the narrator. You be the person who goes on the journey to see the shroud and is this John the Baptist blood and right. is it Jesus's DNA, you know, yeah. I've been, I've been pitched about 20 of those, which is really funny, but people love those types of shows. Right. People like watching those, which right. is really it shows that, you know, there's a market for them. But I, I like the bigger point of what you were trying to make um, in the marketing side of things, which is it is exciting to see what will happen in the ups and downs. Have you, what like, maybe define what was one of the biggest wins that helped you to feel the victory of it, like in the context of something you did? Uh, gosh, the biggest win. Um, there, you know, there a lot of that, I would say, was in television for me. Mm -hmm. Um so, you know, something as silly as, you know, the Tony Awards, yeah. which, you know, happen every year. They Because Broadway is not massively popular on a national level, but it's something we care about, we would air it. So outside of sweeps and just for everybody's benefit real quickly, sweeps are the months during the year when local TV stations back in the day when there were when their audience was measured and so okay. networks would put on their best programming to help the stations do well during those periods so we still have sweeps in broadcast television now and we would air the tonys just outside of the end of the season in early june after the may sweeps oh, okay. so that we would keep it out of that highly competitive time but we cared about it mm -hmm. and um you know it was always in you know the legit broadway houses and um and a lot of it was controlled by the two organizations that kind of controlled Broadway. Yeah. And so I come in and I go, you know, Rosie O'Donnell was in Greece and she had her daily talk show on the air at the time. So she's kind of a Broadway person. And if we hire her to host it, she can also be promoting it five days a week on her show. And wow. And then no, I love that when that started happening. Right. She started show, showing all that. I mean, she made Broadway amazing again yeah and, and you had that idea and so amazing. she said so she said to me okay i'll do it but i don't want to do it in one of the legit houses i want to do it in radio city oh wow so now i go to the you know to the to the two organizations that run it and i go we want to do it in radio city and they're going no way you know this is broadway we have to do it in a legit house so we battle that out we finally get them to agree we did it in radio city and it was the highest rated tony award show in 10 years that's amazing. So, you know, but I remember that one. I mean, I watched it. I, I love musical theater, so I kind of yeah. have a background in that. And I just thought, I loved when it started moving that direction. Right. We, like those of us who love musical theater and have a lot of friends in that genre. Yeah. We're like, it's a win. Yeah. That's a huge win because yeah. it helped. It wasn't dying, but it wasn't doing great. And all of a sudden, right. start thriving again. Yeah. And Ellen and this generation has helped do the same thing. She's helped yeah. position some people from from that. World. Ellen's amazing, right? Wow. Yeah. So that was a, that's a pretty amazing win to like actually go after. It. And you produced quite a few live shows for what Grammys, Grammys, Tonys, Tonys the Emmys. You know, they they cycle through the networks, the CMA Awards, the ACM Awards, oh, the wow. People's Choice Awards. You know, like all those live what shows. What was your favorite award show to produce? 
Well, they're all fun. I mean, the the CMA Awards was really kind of fun. There, at that time, it was um, produced by a guy named Walter Miller, who was a legendary variety guy, and you know, we just always had a lot of fun together. But yeah. um, and and it's it kind of a little bit of a smaller community. But the Grammys are amazing, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, one year. Um, well, there's just, just so many stories because live TV is scary, you know. Like one year we did the Emmys and, you know, you have like these film clip packages and you have them in different lengths so that you can manage the overall time of the show. Oh, okay. Right. If speeches go real long, you have shorter packages and like that. And so we had so many people not show up at the show to claim <laughs> oh, the rewards. No. We had all the long packages in and we were still running eight minutes short. You know, it's like, oh, no. it like the only time we're telling people to, to doing their speeches, stretch it out, stretch it out. Um, or you would never think that as a viewer. You, you, never, you, you ever, would never know. You would never think that. You know, or, or, or the Grammy Awards one year is one of my, you know, favorite harrowing experience stories is um, uh, I, I come in um, uh, at dinner time because we would do our final rehearsal, then have dinner and then you do the show. And I come in at dinner time, and the producer, Ken Ehrlich, and Walter Miller, the guy I mentioned before, was directing, are there in this huddle. And, you know, your your network antenna goes off going, that doesn't look good, right? So <laughs> I wander over there. I go, hey, guys, what's going on? You know, and... Um, they're like, not Terry. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> not Terry. But And they were like, well, this was a uh, year Ellen was hosting the show. They go, well, Ellen doesn't want to do the show because... Um, the head of the recording academy at the time had decided that he didn't like her open. We're talking about minutes before we go on the air. Oh my gosh. So it's like, okay, so what should we do? But so I go, okay, I have an answer for this. And they said, what's the answer? I said, well, we're going to tell, I'm not going to mention his name, but we're going to tell the guy who's the head of the recording academy that too, too late, can't do this. Yeah. And we're going to go to Ellen's dressing room and we're going to beg. And so, you know, so there's those kinds of things or we're coming at a break one year. And so you have like a um, long, like four to five minute commercial break. When we come out of this commercial break, Pavarotti is going to be performing. So now we're down to about a minute until the break is over. And the stage manager says, we can't find Pavarotti. And so we, you know, and this is all happening in seconds, right? You grab his manager who says, Maestro wasn't feeling it. He went back to the hotel. Oh, my gosh. And so we're like, and credit to Ken Ehrlich, he, um, the night before the Grammys, they do a charity dinner called Music Cares, and Aretha Franklin at that, they were honoring Pavarotti, and she had done the same song the night before. Oh, wow. So Ken went to, for Aretha. to Aretha and said, yeah. can you save our lives here? Which she did, but what nobody else would know is her music charts weren't there. His charts in a different key were there. Wow. So she went on with a minute's notice and performed the song in his key. Wow. Aretha, go girl. Go girl. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. No, these are fascinating stories. I think that the big picture is that a lot of people don't realize that there's Christians on this level of assignment in the entertainment industry. And that's one of the reasons why we're having these conversations is just to kind of hear the background and hear what God's doing and what your role's like. And, you know, you could have stayed in ministry this whole time and had significance in the sense of what people could see the visible kingdom as, but you're going after the the visible kingdom in a different sphere. And we understand that now, but when you started, that wasn't very popular. And now 
now it's something that a lot of people are running towards this entertainment mountain or this sphere, just knowing that God wants to do something. And yeah. I think it's so beautiful that you've, you've been there before you even understood why you just followed God there. And now you have all these stories and this credibility and you're helping to help others navigate, you know, through yeah. this industry. And I really appreciate that. Well, thank you. And you know, early on there were a, a handful of people that were willing to say that they were believers in Hollywood and we would meet regularly talking about how do we do something together? How do yeah. we affect change? And all these years later, I think the answer wasn't to to organize in some way, although there's yeah. great ministries that do connect people to one another. It wasn't like we need to have a studio that does this. Yeah. Um, the answer was God wanted to equip a lot of people and spread them through the industry. And so to go back to things that we were saying earlier, I think it's important that when people come, it's not about your fame. Um, stories carry truth. Stories are, are containers of meaning. Mm -hmm. That meaning and that truth has to be authentic and honest um, or an actor can't even really perform it well, let alone resonate with an audience. The, yeah. the, the key is for an audience to see something of themselves in these stories. And um, so that's a, a big responsibility. The second thing is, um, you, you know, we can impact the culture. And, and, and by that, I don't mean, and I'm sorry if, if this offends anybody, but I don't mean the whole Christian entertainment thing, you yeah. know, because I don't, th I don't think we're talking beyond the church in that, in that, um, fragment of the market. Yeah. Um, and, and at least it's not where I'm, where I'm called. And so, um, I, I think we can, if you'll indulge me, I'm just going to do a quick little thing on this, um. I think one of the problems with that part of that Christian media thing is American Christians think the the war in the culture is about morality. Mm -hmm. And so I think we're fighting the wrong fight because morality is not only a symptom, yeah. it's a byproduct of something. So I say this all the time. Keep right? going. So morality, um, and before I talk about where it comes from, if the war is about morality, then Jesus died in vain. Paul said that, yeah. right? If it's about us keeping some law, then Jesus came for no reason. So morality emanates from the values of a group of people at a moment in time. And our values come from our core beliefs. The Christian media is busy answering questions and forcing doctrine on people and answering questions nobody's even asking. Yeah. And if we want to change the culture, you know, it's like in the military, they talk about getting the hearts and minds. If you want to change the culture, you have to cause people to question their core beliefs. And we, as believers, need to embrace things that are messy, but there's truth in it. Yeah. Questioning core beliefs is where we can make a difference in somebody's life. You know, mm -hmm. I, I sometimes, two quick stories. Um, sometimes when I talk to Christians who can be funders or can really make a difference. I'll say, look, I want to tell a story and I want to know if you'll support it. Here's the story. There's a guy who is forced into a position he does not want to be in. He's a lawyer. He's forced to defend somebody. He does not want to do this. 
It's very public, big spotlight. He doesn't. It's not even the kind of law he practices. He doesn't want to be there, but he's forced to do it. And once he agrees, he decides justice is going to be served. And that position is so unpopular, he's not only attacked by lots of people, but he and his family are attacked by the very people who put him in that position. Mm. And in the end, he develops a relationship you could only call loving your enemy. So should we make that story? And they'll go, yeah, 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 we should make that story. I go, okay, here's the problem. Steven Spielberg made that movie. It's called Bridge of Spies, but you're not talking about it. And then I say, well, here's another, here's another one for you. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this sh- stunningly beautiful young woman. I mean, just one of the prettiest women you've ever seen. And her family is in crisis. And the crisis is so desperate. There's no real mention of God anywhere. But the crisis is so desperate, she is literally forced to prostitute herself one night to save her family. Should we tell that story? And you'd probably throw me out of the church. The problem is her name's Esther and she's yeah. in the Bible. Yeah. And so, like, what do you think happened that night? Yeah. And so, um, so the Bible's messy, life is messy, and we have to tell the truth. Yeah. No, I so appreciate that because I feel like, and I, I, I love faith-based in the sense of what it can be for the church, but it, yeah. it is it is church-centric. And then right. there's these crossover projects, and there's mainstream projects. And the crossover projects, everybody who does faith-based seems to think their thing is a crossover. Their thing is the thing that's going to change the conversation. But unfortunately, you're right. It is usually political or driven or contrived or whatever. If it tries to be preacher edutainment versus actually telling an honest story. And I think I think the good thing is we're at such an immature place as far as our position as Christians in film and television. We were last in line right. in this area. I mean, there's Mormonism was doing it before us. You know, like we're last yeah, in line. Yeah. And I look at issues like comedy, issues like rom-com, these kinds of, we are last in line as Christians even tell the story. So we're, it's awkward right now. It's like an awkward teenage phase where the legs are too, you know, long and the arms are longer than the legs. It looks weird right now. So right. I'm, I'm not discouraged with the fact that it's messy for Christians to tell faith-based projects. I'm just discouraged with the arrogance or the attitude that comes in, like, we have something, and you're looking at it going, but in comparison to everything else, it's great for the church. Or the gatekeepers of the church that will prevent you from having a real dialogue with the church about why they should care about certain yeah. stories because those gatekeepers don't understand it. Which I, that's what I think you've been here long enough to where you've had those conversations over and over to where I think there's another generation emerging because a lot of those gatekeepers' kids are going in the entertainment industry. Right. Right. And all of a sudden, they're having to have different discussions. When your kids are in that land, they're, they're like, wait a minute, my daughter's a model? Wait, my son's a producer? Yeah. Wait, my son's a director? Yeah. You're having a different conversation. When you were here, I mean, I know of 150 leaders' kids now who are apostles, prophets, pastors, whatever, mm. whether charismatic or evangelical, whose kids are here in the entertainment industry now. Mm. That changes the entire conversation right. in the church at large. Right. Because all of a sudden, the parents are caring about their kids wanting to tell stories that scare them. And and, and I'll tell you, I, I so we talked about Bob Dylan earlier. Yeah. Um, I, I'm going to tell a different story, but, but keep Dylan in mind yeah. as an example. Um, when my oldest son was in high school, he kept telling me he wanted me to see this documentary about Tupac Shakur. And, you know, I was at CBS then overseeing the Grammys. I thought I knew everything. And I was like, yeah, I don't really care about Tupac. And so eventually I was like, okay, don't be a dope. If it's important to him, you ought to watch it. Yeah. So I watched this documentary. I learned a few things. One, it was a great documentary. It's called Resurrection. Two, I don't know anything about Tupac's faith, but I do know this. 
he was a prophet to his culture because he was writing songs and singing about the injustice in the streets that he came from. Mm -hmm. And he was literally killed for that. And that's when the light bulb went off and I realized that's who the prophets were. They wrote in poetic literature. They sang wow. songs. They wow. built sculptures. They ran around naked. Whatever they had to do to draw attention to what God had put in them. So I think God is more pleased with an artist whose doctrine may not be so cool, but who is sincerely seeking truth and seeking God for telling the truth through their art at that moment of time than he is with all the self-righteous stuff that goes on in the church. Wow. That's a huge statement. And I like that statement. I appreciate that statement. Wow. Well, we've had some compelling conversation here. And I hope that you enjoyed it. And you can look up Terry Botwick on IMDb. And also, what is your website? Don't have one right now. You don't have one right now. Well, no. let's go back to that, IMDb. <laughs> and you can get in touch with what he's doing in the future. And also, I just think your voice, sometimes you speak at events and Christian events as well as other events. And I just encourage you, if there's one in your area that you hear about, go to it. Listen to this man. I've so enjoyed our time. Thank you. Thanks. This is good. Appreciate awesome. it. Appreciate you. Thanks for listening to Exploring the Industry, our brand new podcast. And it's actually part of the podcast family of Exploring the Prophetic. If you subscribe now, you're going to hear weekly stories on Wednesdays that are everyday people like you and I who are hearing God and God is changing our options. He's changing our world. He's transforming culture around us because we're saying yes and obedience to God. And then on Fridays, we have Exploring the Industry. So make sure to subscribe and you're going to hear these amazing stories twice a week. And we need these stories right now. I know if, if you're like me, you need the encouragement. So come join the conversation. Thank you for listening to Exploring the Industry. We're believing that God's going to change the world through the entertainment industry. And we want to invite you into the conversation. Please subscribe, hit the notification bell to this podcast. Also visit us at bowlsministries.com where you're going to find tons of resources to help you on your spiritual journey.